Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. How does stress impact us physically? It may manifest in the form of frequent headaches, exhaustion, or stomach upset. Today, where we live, we focus on the connections between physical and mental health. Coming up, we also talk about how long-term illnesses or trauma impacts physical activity. A local certified personal trainer joins us to talk about the importance of a trauma-centered approach to exercise. We also hear from a reporter from Kaiser Health News. Now you can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me first on Zoom, Dr. Julian Ford, clinical psychologist and professor in the Department of Psychiatry at UConn Health. Julian, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. So I'd mentioned uh, when we were having uh, physical issues, whether they're frequent headaches or stomach upset, um, that can be tied to stress. And so I wanted you to start off by talking about these connections between our mental and physical health. Well, I, I think we, we learned perhaps several centuries ago when a f- famous philosopher, Rene Descartes, uh, suggested that there's a connection between the mind and the body, although he suggested that it was very separate. It turns out that actually uh, the mind and the brain and the rest of the body are very interconnected. So stress has a, a profound effect that can take the form of either physical health problems or mental health problems, and in many cases, a combination of both. And the most important thing I think to think about right from the very beginning is what type of stress should we be concerned about? Because stress is absolutely inevitable in all of our lives. Much of it is actually good, many opportunities and challenges. But when stress is chronic or when it begins in childhood and profoundly affects childhood development, that's when stress leads to potentially very serious problems with both physical and mental health. When we think about how our body reacts to stress, Julian, can you talk about some of the ways the body adapts? Well, you know, the, the most important thing to, for us to, to take into consideration is that the body initially reacts to stress as, as if there is a, some kind of an adversary. So the stress itself, when it's chronic or when it begins early in life, is essentially a threat to the individual's health and survival. So the body reacts as if it was actually subjected to a bacteria or to a virus. And and so the stress response then, which is actually a very healthy response of mobilizing us and helping us be alert and handle situations, it can become a very defensive and a very chronic response of hypervigilance. And the way that that takes shape in the body itself is actually a process called inflammation. And inflammation is really the body's defense against 
external threats like bacteria or viruses, but it is also something that occurs when we experience chronic or childhood stress. And inflammation helps the body to fight off agents that are going to harm us and helps us actually heal from injuries as well as from uh, illness. But when inflammation continues over a long period of time and it becomes a chronic condition, then that wears down the body very, very significantly. It also puts a great strain on us emotionally and psychologically. And ultimately it leads to what, what's now been termed premature aging, where literally our bodies and our psyches are under such strain over a prolonged period of time that we literally age more quickly and are worn down and lose some of the durability. There's even a a particular marker for that called telomeres, which are, are, without getting too technical, those are the the ends of chromosomes, parts of the genes that are the building blocks of, of really our lives. And those ends of the chromosomes that are kind of like protective gloves or sheaths, they get worn down when we experience stress and when we experience chronic inflammation. So basically what we've got is a situation where the body and the mind and the emotions are being placed under great strain and there's not really an opportunity to to let up and to heal. And that's what causes both physical and psychological problems to be much worse than they would be otherwise. Uh, It doesn't always cause the actual illness, but it makes it much worse. Right. Thinking about these stress hormones being activated and not being able to shut off uh, the long-term impact even on our organs. And when we think about our immune system, as you mentioned, our nervous system, even our digestion, Julia. Absolutely. It affects all those parts of the body. That's why chronic stress is related to difficulties with uh, with uh, the digestive system, like irritable bowel syndrome. It doesn't necessarily cause those illnesses, but it contributes greatly to them and makes us more susceptible to them. It doesn't cause cancers or heart disease, but it makes us more susceptible. And, you know, in, when, when we're also under chronic stress, we're more likely to feel anxious to feel down or even depressed. And those kinds of reactions, which are actually part of the body and the the mind's response system to protect us, those kinds of reactions that are mental health problems, they further wear down the body because the body has to mobilize in order to literally help us overcome feelings of anxiety or depression. When we think about our immune system and the impact of chronic stress, uh, can you tell us more? Well, what we know is that when people experience chronic stress, and, and sometimes especially when that stress begins in early childhood and it affects a, a child's entire physical and psychological development, that kind of chronic stress then leads the, the body to essentially adopt a defensive position. It, it literally puts us into a state of survival mode. And this is often something that is so second nature, we don't even know it. People around us often realize that we're on edge or we're just constantly exhausted or we're irritable or we're worried and just never feel quite secure and confident. All of those signs are often taken to just be ordinary reactions and they are perfectly normal and understandable reactions, but when they become a lifestyle, then the body is literally in a defensive mode 
And that puts a strain, uh, the immune system then is intended to protect us and the inflammation response is part of the immune system. So when the body gears up to protect us and never lets down, that puts a great strain on every part of the body, every organ, every system, and it also puts an enormous emotional strain on us. So that's, that's what we really have to be thinking about. We, we have to think of stress as not the cause of mental or physical health problems, but as the, the challenge and the opportunity for us to actually be able to prevent those problems or to heal from them when, when they occur. You're hearing Dr. Julian Ford here on Where We Live, a clinical psychologist and professor in the Department of Psychiatry at UConn Health. As we talk about the impacts of chronic stress, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Especially in the pandemic, Julian, there's been attention on mental health. And I'm wondering, from all that you have just shared with us about the connections between mental health and physical health, is there more of an emphasis with providers thinking about uh, the impacts of chronic stress on the physical body? What can you tell us? Oh, yes. I think that, that healthcare providers, physical healthcare providers, doctors, nurses, physicians, assistants, all, the, all those wonderful people, and mental health providers, counselors, therapists, psychiatrists, social workers, we are all much more concerned about chronic stress because the, the pandemic has really created an enormous additional burden of chronic stress for just about everyone. And, and for some communities and some groups, it's been particularly profound. Those who are already subject to massive kinds of stresses because of structural racism, because of inequities, uh, because of prejudice and discrimination. So when we think about how we're now providing healthcare, we're, we're constantly thinking that we have to take into account every single individual's stress as well as the other aspects of their health. And I, I really want to add the health, the stress that healthcare providers themselves have experienced has been profound. The, the, the immense, immense additional responsibilities that have come with fighting off COVID, with helping people recover from and deal with COVID and the losses that have occurred due to COVID. Those have taken an enormous toll on healthcare workers, and they are incredibly resilient, but the stress is taking a toll on them as well. Mm. It certainly sounds like a breaking point, Julian, and I was thinking about um, all of the, the shows we've done in the last couple of years about how there is demand uh, for um, helping people with um, their mental health issues, but there aren't enough providers. And then you're talking about burnout among providers. And so if somebody is dealing uh, with, uh, uh, when they're thinking about their mental health and it's leading uh, to some chronic issues, as we mentioned, headaches, exhaustion, and they go to see their regular doctor, you know, what are the avenues to help them if they can't if it's they can't figure out what's causing it other than it's the chronic stress that they're under and they need to see someone to talk to someone about that? Well, that is the sixty thousand dollar question, Lucy. And uh, part of the answer is that we clearly and I I see that there's a, there's recognition of that in the state nationally and internationally that we need additional funding. We need more providers who are skilled at providing mental health care, often in, in, in collaboration with the physical health care providers. Sometimes the physical health care providers, doctors, nurses, 
and physicians assistants and all of the allied health providers, they need to also know how to help their patients with stress. They don't have to become therapists. They don't have to necessarily, in fact, they shouldn't be uh, burdened with the responsibility of doing mental health treatment, but they can do preventive work. Um, and what we found that I think is most important, given that we're going to have a shortage um, and it's not going to be addressed immediately, it's gonna take time to build up the workforce and to replenish the workforce because of the stress that has, has occurred. While that's happening, I think it's really crucial for both physical health providers and mental health providers to know ways in which they can help their patients even without knowing exactly what the, the specific best therapeutic approach is necessarily, it's very possible to provide initial guidance. And the kind of guidance that's, that's most important is just to help people understand why does stress have this effect? And, and what we found is that perhaps the best way to explain that is that we, we all know that stress can lead to fight flight responses. And we, we also know that it can lead to the adrenaline rush and to stress hormones. But what most people are not really aware of because it really hasn't been fully de uh, described in education and in public information is that stress really has its effects beginning in the brain. And literally there is a center in the brain uh, that is like an alarm that literally does go off. We've seen this in, in hundreds of studies that take pictures of the brain under different conditions. This stress alarm in the brain, it's called the amygdala, but we don't need to get technical about that. That the stress alarm, when it is activated, it literally does change the, the, the information flow in the brain and in the body. It sends signals right down to the body. It's the source of this or it is the trigger for the stress hormones, for the adrenaline rush, but it's also the trigger for feelings of sadness or frustration or anger or grief or shame. So what we know now is that there are ways to help reset this alarm in the brain when it becomes essentially chronically stuck on alert, on high alert. And that's what chronic stress is. And those approaches, and I think uh, your guests who are going to continue on on the show as we uh, as we go forward today are going to talk some more about how that actually is done but what's most important from my perspective is people need to know that it's not just by thinking positive thoughts or taking a deep breath or being mindful or stepping back and pausing from the rush of life all those things are very important and healthy lifestyle exercise diet and all that but the fundamental challenge is to be able to reset the alarm in our brain. And there are ways that we can do that that are as brief as just a, a moment or two of shifting our focus. Again, you're hearing Dr. Julian Ford here on Where We Live. We'd love to hear your questions or comments, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, what if someone has already been uh, diagnosed, say, with um, anxiety or depression? Are they more likely to maybe be more at risk for physical health issues, Julian? Absolutely, Lucy. Yes, we know that, that people who are diagnosed with with mental health disorders of a, a wide variety, depression being a particularly crucial one, but also anxiety disorders, sometimes even more serious mental illness. Those mental illnesses or mental health problems do place an individual at risk for physical health problems. We don't know the exact connection and it's it could be a chicken and egg. We don't know which causes which and it's probably that they both compound each other. So it's not 
that mental health problems lead to physical health illnesses, but it's that when you have a mental health problem, the body is under stress. The body is experiencing a constant state of challenge. And that hypervigilance, that alarm state, as I've been describing, that places a strain on the body, which makes it less able to defend against bacteria, viruses, and all the other sources of illness, including immune and autoimmune disorders. So it doesn't cause those disorders, but it does lead the person to be more susceptible because their body is busy just trying to fight off the emotional effects of stress, and that reduces the body's ability to fight off the potential physical adversaries. We're also thinking about, uh, when we're talking about doing this show, uh, when people are dealing with long-term illnesses or life-threatening conditions, you know, even when we think about uh, the, the toll COVID has taken, uh, many people that have uh, these long-term impacts, you know, have there, are there studies going on now about, you know, the, the, what, how that impacts their uh, mental health? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there there are many studies internationally. Um, I, I'm working with a, a group called the Global Tra- Psychotraumatology Collaboration that is doing studies internationally, really on every continent, looking at the impact of the, the pandemic, the kinds of chronic stress that has occurred as a result of the pandemic, stress on individuals, stress on parents and families, stress on communities, and all of those types of stress are being looked at very carefully because we we have a, a kind of a very tragic and unfortunate laboratory here. We have we have an, an implosion of chronic stress that we could never have anticipated, we never would have wanted, but having it happen, we now are looking very carefully at what are the impacts. And part of what we're seeing, Lucy, is that there are there are initial impacts you know probably most of us when the we were first aware of the pandemic in early 2020 it was very stressful and we were all concerned and worried and we, we were uncertain what to do and that took a toll and then there have been opening up periods and lockdown periods and that constant back and forth and the uncertainty about what may come next while we know that there's great progress and there there's reason to be very optimistic about dealing with the this global pandemic, we also know that there is continuing uncertainty. And as a result, the the impact that it's going to have on physical health and mental health is likely to extend over many, many years and probably over decades. And I think we're especially concerned about the impact that it's having on children because their development is so, so fragile and crucial, even though they're resilient. We, we know, for example, independent of the of the COVID pandemic, we know that it, as of 2019, the most recent data that, that were available, uh, it's estimated that childhood adversity and COVID-19 has created an enormous amount of childhood adversity and worsened some kinds, such as child abuse and domestic violence. Childhood adversity causes an estimated over 400,000 deaths in the United States every year, and it causes an excess of as many as 19 million cases of chronic inflammation every year. Now that's pre-pandemic, and we know that the impact is going to be escalated by the pandemic. 
My guest is Dr. Julian Ford, clinical psychologist and professor in the Department of Psychiatry at UConn Health. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, as Julian mentioned, chronic stress and its impact on physical and mental health affected a lot of people during the pandemic. We're going to hear more from a national correspondent with Kaiser Health News, and you can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about the connections between mental health and physical health. With us is Dr. Julian Ford, a clinical psychologist and professor in the Department of Psychiatry at UConn Health. Uh, Our next guest is a journalist for Kaiser Health News who wrote about chronic stress. During the pandemic, otherwise healthy people began to suffer from headaches, hair loss, stomach upset, and flare-ups of autoimmune disorders. And the range of symptoms puzzled both doctors and patients. On Zoom with us, Anari Patani, again, national correspondent with Kaiser Health News. Anari, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. So first, how did you get interested in this topic? With the pandemic raging, uh, there's so much to get to. Yeah, uh, this was uh, certainly uh, something that I I was seeing personally. So it was one of those instances where, you know, I had um, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, we're dealing with uh, all the stressors everyone was facing, the uncertainty, the, um, you know, the lockdowns, the suddenly working from home as a health reporter, there was suddenly everything to, to cover all the time. Um, and I started noticing, you know, different physical symptoms, um, you know, GI symptoms for myself that were, were getting worse and worse. And, um, you know, doctors couldn't find a, a physical cause. And I was hearing similar things from a lot of my friends. And then I was on Facebook and social media and seeing people talking about hair loss or, you know, sudden migraines that were happening every other day or, you know, just increased frequency. And so um, as many reporters, I took the questions I have about my own life and and those around me and uh, took it to the experts and really found that a lot of physicians were seeing we're seeing these, you know, eruption of, of physical symptoms. People were, you know, grinding their teeth, and suddenly dentists were were having to deal with uh, broken teeth um, in in spades. 
And, uh, you know, fertility specialists were telling me, you know, people suddenly have uh, different menstrual cycles with, with no cause. Um, all, you know, insomnia was up, all these sorts of different um, physical manifestations. And what it came down to, a lot of folks were saying, you know, a lot of people at that point had been several months in the pandemic and that chronic stress that um, Dr. Julian had been talking about was really building up and sort of manifesting in a variety of different physical symptoms. I understand uh, with your uh, mental health reporting, you also talked with people uh, that were trying to access the system, including uh, a college student at Princeton. Uh, what was her experience in Aerie? Yeah, so this is actually um, pre-pandemic. This is a story I'd done a few years ago, but I think it, it illustrates this uh, very similar issue. Uh, so there was a uh, college student at the time. Um, her name was Diana. She was at Princeton. And she had uh, a inflammatory eye condition where uh, the pressure behind her eye would build up so much at times that it would cause temporary temporary blindness. Um, and she was visiting all these different um, doctors, going to the ER, trying to figure out, you know, what's behind this, what's causing it, and, you know, to, to really no avail, no answers, until an ophthalmologist mentioned to her that she had seen this condition in many of her patients with mental illnesses. And Diana had been um, diagnosed with bipolar disorder as a teenager. Uh, however, no one had made that connection because she had been seeing a therapist separately for her bipolar disorder, and then, you know, going to uh, physicians, primary care, ophthalmologists separately for, for her eye issues. And uh, because those systems work so separately, it took her a really long time to make that connection. And when it came together, then she realized, you know, when she did a, when she was able to better manage her bipolar disorder, whether that's through medications or therapy or other forms of decreasing stress in her life that can trigger those episodes, the episodes of temporary blindness also went down. Um, but it takes a long time because she was the one who had to make those connections. Our systems are set up often to treat mental and physical health so separately and so distinctly that it's hard for physicians often to make that connection. Mm -hmm. And that was pre-pandemic. And, and look where we are today, Aneri. Uh, this the when you think about how chronic stress is impacting uh, the body, and then if you're not getting an answer to what's going on, the stress continues continues to build. Absolutely, and I think it's it creates a loop in itself, right? Because um, as you search for the answers, if you're undergoing some sort of physical symptoms, you're searching for the answers and that can involve undergoing a lot of tests. Sometimes it's a blood test, but maybe it's, you know, something more invasive, something that itself causes anxiety or stress. And you're going through all these procedures with the hope that you come out with an answer and a solution. And, you know, in Diana's case, in the case of a lot of folks I spoke with, that process can take months and, and you know, even more than a year for some people. Um, so that search in itself, you know, kind of, you start off with stress, you're going through these procedures, you don't end up with an answer, there's more stress, that stress can lead to more physical symptoms, and you get caught in this really unfortunate cycle. So tell me about some of the people that you you did speak to in this, uh, this story during the pandemic for Kaiser Health News, uh, those who were noticing uh, these physical changes and wanting to get answers. What did doctors tell them? And and, and did they see improvement? Did they get, um, you know, referred uh, to a counselor or something to help them with the symptoms that were being manifested? Yeah, I think there, so several of them did. 
so one of them, um, her name was Ashley. Uh, she was, uh, she's a writer in, in Long, on Long Island and um, she had been getting sort of crazy migraines. Um, and she was actually first sent to, you know, a neurologist, getting an MRI, sort of all the, you know, scans and procedures that we're talking about. And when all of those came out clear, um, he asked, you know, are you dealing with a lot of stress? And that sort of led her to understand that, you know, maybe the treatment for this is not a medication or is not a, you know, particular procedure, um, physical procedure, it is addressing mental health. I think for her and for, um, you know, another individual I spoke with, uh, his name is Alex, who was working at um, Whole Foods at the time. And so was one of those frontline workers in New York City going every day to work um, at a time when, you know, this was spreading like crazy and we didn't know that much about it. Uh, he, for both of them, right, they're eventually referred to therapy, but accessing therapy is a different story. So for him, he used um, like an app originally. He tried uh, Talkspace rather, which is a texting, like you text a therapist, um, but it felt really impersonal to him and he wanted to be, you know, interacting with, with the, with an actual therapist. But as, you know, as we, many of us know, as Dr. Julian mentioned earlier, there's a shortage of therapists and it's really hard to get in and it depends on what insurance you have and depends on what you can afford to pay out of pocket. Uh, and so, you know, he, Alex in that case, eventually got, um, some sessions offered through his employer, which was Whole Foods but they're limited term. And he was like feeling better at the time I spoke with him through those sessions, but he wasn't sure what he would do once they ran out. Mm. So the onus is really on the patient to figure out, you know, the next steps for them. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of times our system in, in the mental health system, of course, it's, it's on them, but even prior to that, right, making the connection between physical and mental health is often on the patient because of the way our system works. So you have to sort of realize that the connection is there, bring that up maybe to a doctor, suggest it, see if they you know, will work with you on it. And then if the, if the answer is, oh, well, you need to do something to improve your mental health, more often than not, that really is on the patient to figure out how do I get access to it? And some people you know, luckily will be able to, but for a lot of people, the mental health system is, is scarce and under-resourced. You're hearing Anari Patani here on Where We Live, national correspondent with Kaiser Health News, as we talk about the impact of chronic stress. Uh, Kathy tweeted to us that she wanted to hear from you and from uh, Julian about the importance of addressing the social determinants of health. If we made sure people had adequate housing, food, education, transportation, income, how many of these health problems would be reduced? Anari, I'll start with you. Oh boy. Um, I don't have a number on that, but I mean, I think we can all imagine, right? So many of, if, if your housing is stable, that takes care of so many anxieties and worries. And I'm not saying this solves all mental illness, right? Of course, there's still biological components. There are other stressors in life. But when, when we're talking about chronic stress in particular, if I don't know where I'm going to live, if I don't know where my next meal is coming from, if I feel unsafe in my neighborhood and stepping outside of my home, um, if I'm worried about, you know, if my job is going to be there tomorrow or how I'm going to provide for my family, those are all going to create a ton of chronic stress. Um, and that, as we've been talking about, can lead to a lot of physical ailments or exacerbate pre-existing physical issues. 
So I'm sure it would impact a huge number of folks if we could really tackle those social determinants. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Julian Ford, you're still with us. Did you want to respond? Oh, absolutely, Lucy. And I couldn't agree more with Anari. Those social determinants, the, the, the things that we count on every day just for our sense of security and, and having a, a rhythm and familiarity in our life and c- connections to, to people who we can count on and who, who we care for and care for us. Without that, chronic stress is just amplified tremendously. However, I, I think it's also very important to keep in mind that there are now more and more innovative programs that do not just provide housing or do not just provide for other kinds of material needs, but that co-locate, just as we can co-locate mental health services in primary care, health care, those mental health services, social workers, counselors, sometimes psychologists like myself, when we're able to work with people while they're moving, say, perhaps from a, from being homeless to being able to be in stable housing, or being able to move through the, 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 the challenges that, that are faced when people are experiencing racism and discrimination. Mental health services are not something that should be apart from that. They can be very much integrated right into the provision of those other services that address the social determinants. That point is especially important, the co-location. Anari, what are you seeing, uh, you know, especially in your reporting? That story originally came out in October of 2020. And so as uh, we, as providers, as research shows, that link between the physical and the mental, when, t- when we think about access, you know, is there a shift happening? I think there's two, two separate things we're talking about here. Uh, since I wrote that story, October 2020, I think awareness on the physical mental health connection has grown hugely. Mm -hmm. We are seeing people talk about mental health more openly. We're talking about it with schools, with employees, with, you know, folks in all different spaces, um, individuals living in nursing homes. So I think the conversation about mental health has grown uh, tremendously over the course of the pandemic uh, among the public and among, you know, policymakers and providers. So there's definitely a lot more awareness of these are important issues to ask about. So maybe your primary care doctor is asking you more regularly about this, or even a specialist you go to might be talking to you about this. And maybe your therapist, or if you have mental health care, maybe they're asking you about the physical impacts because there's more awareness of this. I think um, changing the second part, which is the access, is uh, takes a little more time. We've certainly seen a lot of uh, success with telehealth and increasing access to that. And Um, A lot of states suspended rules that made it difficult to access telehealth in the past or, um, you know, difficult to pay for telehealth in the past. So that's great. Um, But I think we also need to think about, you know, folks in more rural areas of the country. Um, Some of them, for some of them, the telehealth is not um, always a great solution if they don't have access to broadband. Um, So in that case, uh, something like uh, Dr. Julian was mentioning, you know, primary care and um, mental health sort of integrating, being able to go to one office and and see two people, or even I've been speaking with a lot of primary care doctors who are saying, you know, they can also try to provide care for some level of anxiety and depression, manage some medications. You know, these are um, often people who know their patients since they were kids or, or, you know, have really great connections with them where um, patients might feel open to sharing more. Um, So I think there's a recognition and desire among different parts of the treatment system to really take a role in this, but increasing access is is a long-term goal. 
That's Anari Patani, national correspondent with Kaiser Health News. Anari, we'll link to your story on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, if you're dealing with a long-term illness or a traumatic experience, exercising may be the last thing on your mind. We're going to talk to a local certified personal trainer about a trauma-centered approach to fitness. And here's some tips about it, how to fend off chronic stress. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. If you're dealing with a long-term illness or a traumatic experience, exercising may be the last thing on your mind. Joining us now is a local certified personal trainer to talk about a trauma-centered approach to fitness. Heather Labby is Director of Trauma-Informed Wellness and Education at the YWCA in New Britain, and she's a trauma-informed yoga instructor. Heather, welcome back to our show. So, Heather, it looks like your Zoom is acting up. So I'm going to ask um, our call screener to give you a call, and we'll be with you shortly. But I'm going to go back to uh, Dr. Julian Ford, who's still with us, clinical psychologist and professor in the Department of Psychiatry at UConn Health. Uh, Julian, Bob wrote on Facebook, uh, Julian was talking about the effects of chronic stress on the amygdala and things to deal with them, exercise, but he seemed to hint there were other steps that we could take. Can you elaborate on that? Oh, I'd be glad to, Lucy. Thank you. Thanks, Bob, for the question. What, what we found is that when, when people exercise, and as, as I'm sure Heather is going to describe, it can be enormously beneficial to in, in terms of actually helping a person to come to a, a, a greater sense of peace in in regard to things that have happened to them that may have been traumatic in their lives. It doesn't, it's, it's not a, a treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, but it can be a very important component of healing from post-traumatic stress. What we found, however, is that what the crucial element in exercise, in meditation, in mindfulness, in all kinds of approaches that can be helpful with chronic stress or traumatic stress, is being able to shift to focus. So we've done this in a very simple way just to keep it simple smart. We just simply talk about doing an SOS and that stands for slow down and sweep your mind clear and that's the S and then orient yourself which is focus on just one thought or one part of your life that is most important at this moment. And it's interesting when people do that when they shift out of thinking about everything and trying to figure out everything and just focus on one thing, one person, one lyric from, a, from some music, one image, one place, that gives a sense of presence that is, is quite unique. And then after orienting, we suggest to just do a quick self-check and just notice how much stress you're feeling. We have a stress thermometer from 1 to 10, 10 being the worst stress ever and 1 being none. But we also suggest that people do a, a quick check on their level of personal control. And that's what is most important. And the, the way in which we have control over stress is not by changing everything in the world, even though we can work toward that. 
but the most important source of personal control is being able to think clearly under stress. So the rating for personal control, the thermometer is from not being able to think clearly at all to being able to think very, very clearly. So just that simple SOS. Now it can't be just done once and it's not a relaxation exercise. It's really a way to gear our, ourselves so that we are periodically stepping back from the flow and stress of life and just refocusing on what gives us a sense of purpose and meaning and security. Just so that's a that's a, a very simple practical example, and I hope that's helpful. Thank you. I hope that helps Bob, uh, who's also listening. Just listening to you, Julian, makes me feel calm. Thank you. Uh, Heather, <laughs> Heather Lavi is uh, with us now on the phone. Heather, can you hear us? I can. Can you hear me now? Yes. Uh, thank you again oh, for joining us. Again, you're Director of Trauma-Informed Wellness and Education at the YWCA in New Britain and a trauma-informed mm-hmm. yoga instructor. And so um, this is a new role for you. When we think about uh, the last two-plus years of the pandemic, what brought about this change, this focus on trauma-informed wellness? Well, I've been in uh, professional fitness for about 15 years. And if I had a dollar bill for every person that I've worked with who said to me, you know, now you've become the voice in my head as a trainer, as a group fitness instructor. And um, that's very, that's a lot of responsibility. And I think when we're thinking about how we respond to chronic stress and to post-traumatic stress disorder, trauma triggers, a lot of us have a very critical voice in our head when that happens. And to have another critical voice, if that's a spin instructor or a personal trainer who's maybe trying to use criticism as a way to motivate physical exercise, that's not really helpful. And so the YWCA took the opportunity of the slowdown of the pandemic to really invest in my education so that I can come up with a way to offer folks who are struggling with chronic stress and possibly PTSD and, uh, you know, trauma triggers to participate in exercise and not be worried about being re-triggered or stressed while they're exercising. So that's, that was the impetus. Mm-hmm. And the YWCA really believes in empowering everyone. And this seemed to be a really good way through the trauma and stress of the pandemic to offer good access to exercise that is not re-traumatizing and creating more chronic stress. Uh, Heather, can you give us some more examples of this trauma-centered approach to fitness? Maybe first starting with how you approach uh, adult uh, participants at the YWCA where you are. And then Julian made a great point about the children that are impacted. Mm -hmm. If you could talk about those two. Sure. So when folks come to the YWCA and they interact with our trainers, they interact with our fitness instructors, or take classes online with me with our trauma-informed yoga, they're going to be offered a lot of different options. You know, they can come and go out of the class as they want to. They can ask for modifications. They can, you know, ask questions. Why, why do I need to do this? They're going to be spoken to in a very respectful manner. They're not going to be yelled at. They're not going to be shamed. Even our playlists, we consider the music and how that's going to impact folks. What the lyrics might be saying, um, you know, and just the different options for people to participate in the exercise in a way that's empowering for them. So then with the children, we have a tremendous 
a preschool program at the YWCA, and I am interacting with every one of our classes on a weekly basis and providing trauma-informed yoga for the children there at the YWCA. We noticed a tremendous increase in uh, traumatic behaviors, especially from little ones who were coming into preschool right at the you know tail end of of lockdown and especially kids who maybe had been at home and never socialized, hadn't gone to childcare or preschool because they had been on lockdown. And having these yoga classes is really giving them some of what Dr. Julian was speaking about, that capacity to shift and check in with themselves and develop this skill of interoception, which is just sort of noticing how they're reacting to the present moment. Mm. I've done yoga before, but when we think about yeah. trauma, you're a trauma-informed yoga instructor. So can you give us an example of how the instructor is talking with the class, with the, the young people, um, and, you know, again, how that helps them kind of connect? Sure. So all of the yoga that we practice at the YWCA, whether it's with the children in the preschool program or with the inpatient and outpatient folks at the Hospital of Central Connecticut, we're collaborating with, with that entity. It's a very different type of yoga class than something that people might experience if they go to a traditional yoga class or yoga studio. The trauma-informed yoga instructor is not going to speak in um, Sanskrit, so they're not going to be using any language that maybe creates a sense of separation between the participant and the instructor. They're going to be offered lots of modifications, and even to the point of if you don't want to participate in a certain shape, uh, you certainly don't have to. The instructor is going to participate along with the children or the adults that are in the class, so again, anything to decrease that sense of separation between the instructor and the participants. And participants can ask questions. There isn't a sense of, you know, silence or um, anything like that. And then the instructor is going to think about the constituency of the participants. So for instance, I work with sexual assault survivors. And there may be certain shapes that just I know might create a stressful experience. And so I'm not going to even offer those shapes in the sequence. And I'm going to let those folks know that they can come or go, they can sit out of a shape, they can ask for modifications anytime that they need to. Mm. That's really interesting. Uh, when we think about this uh, this new approach uh, to exercise, again, the YWCA that you work for has embraced this. I'm wondering, you know, is this something that you're seeing um, throughout, you know, other uh, facilities, or is this still a new approach? Unfortunately, um, I find it hard to connect with any other facilities. I mean, I think. You do sometimes in the media, you'll hear advertisements for different fitness uh, chains that are saying, you know, this is a no judgment zone, which is terrific. That is definitely part of being trauma informed. And um, I hope that that's the experience for people. But we're wanting, we're, we're working and collaborating with other entities to try and really push this out there that this is an option and that this is a way to empower our entire community through the access, whether it's online or coming into the facility and learning 
how to approach fitness in a way that is self-centered, really. Like, how is this feeling for me? Do I need to slow down? Do I need to ask for modifications? How is this impacting my physical and mental experience right now so that I can learn these skills? Um, We're hoping, we'd love to continue to train different uh, providers to just see this option that even in physical fitness, we can take an approach that is combining mental health with physical health. So we know that that's where this stress is landing in the physical body, and we can help as long as we're not creating more stress and more triggers. Mm. Well, Heather Labby, thank you for your time and your work in the community. We appreciate you explaining the importance of this uh, trauma-informed approach to exercise. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Heather, again, is Director of Trauma-Informed Wellness and Education at the YWCA in New Britain, Connecticut. I also want to thank Dr. Julian Ford for being with us, a clinical psychologist and professor in the Department of Psychiatry at UConn Health. Julian, thank you. Thank you very much, Lucy. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We hope you have a great weekend. <laughs>